I will say one more thing to you about Advent, and then I will get out of Dr. Flippin's way. Um, I said last time that it is important to make preparations for Advent, and I just want to throw it out there. What kind of preparations might be good? What kind of preparations during Advent for Christmas might Catholics do? Shopping. There you go. <laughs> suffering, right? Let me, let me tell you one thing real quick. God doesn't rejoice in anyone's suffering. When we do penance, we don't do it we don't do it so that God is happy with us. We do it so that we can get things in right order within ourselves because the whole year long we are constantly being offered things that we are reacting to and going for like food. And entertainment. Would you like to go to a movie? Yes. Do you want to eat? Yes. And we constantly are doing that with ourselves so that we get in that habit of always just going after things without having a proper perspective on what goods are truly good for us. God made food for us and it is a good thing. The Catholic Church understands that, but it also understands that we have to see food in its right place. So it's a time for us to be able to get control over our passions, over our bodies, and let our intellect once again, our souls rule the day. So that, so that, when it comes time to join Christ on the cross, we can willingly accept the cross with Him. Okay, so... Some good things to do, turn off your television, turn off your radios, turn off the internet, and focus on Christ. Dr. Douglas Flippen. You said there was a marker out here? I think there is. Is there not? Nope. I don't I stole it from you then. I'll get you one in a second, girl. Okay. Okay, last week we started off looking at St. Thomas the Man. There we go. And his historical significance. He's a 13th century thinker. Put him Thomas right here. St. Thomas Aquinas, 1225, 1274. He's a 13th century thinker. And I said that one significance about St. Thomas was that he managed to reconcile faith and reason with one another at a time and in a way that it was crucial to do so. And we needed someone of real genius to be able to do it under the circumstances St. Thomas did it under, and, and he did that. So we've got, we've got, we've got faith. Got faith contained in the scriptures. Then this is, comes to us, commentaries by the fathers of the church, 
one very significant father in the Western Church whose influence just is, is thrown over the whole of the Middle Ages as St. Augustine. St. Augustine is 4th and a 5th century individual. We've got reason. Uh, And in the 13th century, when the writings of Aristotle were being rediscovered, his thought was so encyclopedic it covered so many different aspects of reality. It seemed like he almost originated a body of writings that defined logic for hundreds of years. He was a biologist, so that Alexander the Great at one point was sending, Aristotle was supposed to have sent biological samples back to Aristotle from different places because he knew that Aristotle was interested, very, very much interested in, in biology. But reason almost seemed in the time of St. Thomas to be embodied in the thought of Aristotle. But Aristotle's thought was filtered initially for the people in the 13th century. His thought was filtered by a couple of Arabic thinkers, one by the name of Avicenna, who is a um, 10th to 11th century thinker, and then another fellow by the name of Averroes, is a 12th century thinker. So that Aristotle comes down to the 13th century. His works are translated sometimes from the original Greek through Syriac, through perhaps another language, then finally into Latin. Um, so that they could sometimes be a bit difficult to read. Um, every now and then, you know, you have a work translated directly from Greek into Latin, so it was much easier. And St. Thomas got a friend of his in the Dominican order to, to translate the works of Aristotle um, for him from Greek directly into Latin, and Thomas asked him, for literal common, I'm sorry, literal translations. Don't give me any fancy interpretations of what you think the man was trying to say. Just just translate, translate from Greek into Latin literally, so that I can interpret it. Um, I, I, I want to know what the text says as literally as possible. So the thought of Aristotle, covering an incredible range of, of topics, um, floods the 13th century. This, Aristotle seems like the incarnation of reason. But he's, he's, he appears with a couple of interpreters. 
problem here is at least one of those interpreters had been influenced by Plato, who had been Aristotle's teacher. Plato and Aristotle did not look at reality in the same way. On a number of points, they were very different from one another. And I think I had indicated that Plato had also influenced the thought of St. Augustine. So reason, and what reason seemed to be saying about reality, and faith, and what faith seemed to be saying about reality, um, were not pure and undiluted. Um, even if you treated Aristotle as the incarnation of human reason, which is wrong to do, you don't treat anybody as the incarnation of human reason, but <coughs> Aristotle seemed a better candidate to be considered the incarnation of reason than, than, than anyone else. Um, yet, er, yet reason, as embodied in the thought of Aristotle, appeared together with these, these other thinkers, and you had, you had Latin-speaking thinkers in the 13th century who were known as the Latin Averroists. Because They were followers of Aristotle as understood by Averroes. Averroes worshipped the ground that Aristotle had walked on. He is known as the commentator on Aristotle. So, because a group of Latin-speaking thinkers, mostly philosophers, not theologians, in the 13th century, adhered to the thought of Aristotle as understood and interpreted by Averroes. They were called the Latin Averroists. They attacked St. Thomas from one side for not being faithful to their understanding of Aristotle, for not following reason the way they understood reason. There were a lot of theologians at the time who were Augustinian. Who tended to equate the faith with St. Augustine's thought. And St. Augustine was a tremendous theologian. And he did a lot of work, a lot of important work, in trying to understand the scriptures, try to gain a deeper understanding of what had been revealed to us through the scriptures. The only problem, slight problem, was that sometimes his, his, the reason, the arguments, the rational, um, natural human knowledge that he was bringing to his interpretation of the scriptures had been a little too influenced by the thought of Plato. Even though St. Augustine was not a Platonist, he wasn't a straightforward Platonist, he was influenced by Plato. So Thomas gets attacked 
on the one side by the Augustinian theologians representing faith. He's being attacked on the other side by the Latin Verovists representing reason. He's trying to hold the middle course, trying to defend both reason, especially reason as contained in the pure thought, the, un the unadulterated thought of Aristotle, and the pure faith as contained in the scriptures, the fathers, and in the thought of St. Augustine, but uncontaminated by the thought of Plato. So Thomas had to disentangle the faith from Platonic influences. He had to disentangle Aristotle's thought from Platonic influences also, and from whatever of Airways, who was not a Platonist, had decided to add to Aristotle's thought in order to flesh it out, in order to understand it more fully. So this, this is what I mean when I say Thomas gets a, is going to be attacked from both sides when he's trying to reconcile or harmonize faith and reason with one another. And today we're going to take a look at two problems. So, St. Thomas on... First, we're going to take a look at St. Thomas on human nature, specifically on the unity of human nature. Secondly, we'll take a look at St. Thomas's explanation of how we are united to anything that we know. That is the union between the one knowing and anything that is known. Both of these are tremendous philosophical problems. And it's part of the genius of St. Thomas that he dealt with these problems and reconciled faith and reason in dealing with these problems the way he did. Okay. So one important problem Thomas had to deal with concerning which faith and reason each had something of importance to contribute was the unity of human nature. The first and most basic question needing to be dealt with is what is man? What is man? Is man, one, a substantial unity of body and soul? That is, a unity in which both body and soul are natural and essential parts. Or, this is the Aristotelian position, or is man, two, primarily and essentially a soul, which in this life is temporarily associated with a body. That's Plato's position. Or, third, is man primarily and essentially a body, which happens to be alive for a period of time. This is a materialist position. Different people down through history have adopted this position. As a matter of fact, Averroes pretty well adopts this thoroughly materialistic view of what it is to be human. The way you answer the first question, namely, what is man, determines the direction you are likely to take in answering a second question. What happens to man after death? If man is a substantial unity of body and soul, and death means the separation of soul and body, 
and the destruction of the body, then who are you after you die? Obviously, you are incomplete. The body, a natural and essential part of you, is not there. Part of what you are is gone. (laughs) Are you then the same being? If the soul that survives the body is not you, then you have not survived death. (coughs) In that case, when the resurrection of the body occurs, how can you say that you are getting your body back? What would seem to be happening is that a new person, that is, a new combination of soul and body, would be coming into being. You would have disappeared at death. A new person would have appeared at the resurrection of the body, and yet a third being would have existed as a soul in between. Let us start over and say we are not determined to maintain that man is a natural, substantial unity of body and soul. We're going to drop the first position temporarily. Then, in order not to come into conflict with the faith, we would have to say that the soul that survived, that that after death, the soul that survives the body is you. It's the platonic position. So we're not saying that what it is to be human is a substantial unity of body and soul. We're saying it's essentially just a soul. (laughs) So that after after death, if you're just a soul, that's still you. The soul is still there. Then we are maintaining that the soul that survives the body is the same being as the soul-body combination we know ourselves to be in this life. The only problem we face, then, is this. How can the soul that exists it, that exists by itself, apart from the body, be the same being as the soul united to the body, if we were to say that the person is naturally a substantial unity of body and soul? So... One, one, one possibility then was what it is to be human is a substantial unity of body and soul. You die, your body's gone, you're incomplete. Are you still the same being? It's the problem you're faced with. Um, if you say that you're not the same being, you've got serious problems. You would have disappeared at death, even at the resurrection of the body. Um, we, we, we can hardly say that you've been recreated because you, you went out of existence. I mean, if, if a new being would be recreated, how could we identify it clearly with the old being? I'm sorry. Second. So that, that recap the first part is... And I said, let us start over and say we are, we are determined to maintain that man is a natural, substantial unity of body and soul. Sorry to confuse you. Let us start over and say we are determined to maintain that man is a natural, substantial unity of body and soul. 
then in order not to come into conflict with the faith, we would have to say that after death, the soul that survives the body is you. This is what this is what, we, this is what we want to say. Then we are maintaining that the soul that survives the body is the same being as the soul-body combination we know, we know ourselves to be in this life. So, either... If you, if you take the position that what it is to be human is a soul-body combination, either after death, you say that because you're somehow incomplete in your nature, you're not the same being, or you say, despite the fact that I'm somehow incomplete in nature, I am the same being. Okay, One way or the other. You take the first position. What man is is a natural, is a natural combination, substantial combination of soul and body. Then either we say that after death, even though you're incomplete, either we say you, because you're incomplete, you're not the same being, or despite the fact that you're incomplete after death, you're still the same being. We're going to have to go one way or the other. If we say that somehow you are still the same being, even though you're incomplete, then we're maintaining that the soul that survives the body is the same being as the soul-body combination we know ourselves to be in this life. Then the problem we face is this. How can the soul that exists by itself, apart from the body, be the same being as the soul united to the body if the person is naturally a substantial unity of body and soul? Okay. That's, that's the Aristotelian dilemma. Aristotle said, what I am is a natural unity of body and soul. The question then is, after death, when I exist as a soul, because I'm incomplete, do I either maintain that I'm the same being or not the same being? Let's start over again with Plato's approach and see what happens. If instead, instead of saying that man is a substantial unity of soul and body, you say with Plato that man is essentially only a soul, accidentally associated with a body, then you clearly will have no trouble in explaining how we are the same person after death. Before death, you're a soul accidentally associated with, with a body. After death, you're just a soul. The accidental association with the body has dropped away. Still the same, still the same you, no problem. Okay? If I am a soul, then whether I am accidentally associated with a body or not, I am still I. I am the same being. And I am complete both before and after death. Because the body is no essential part of me. This was very appealing. <coughs> very appealing to a number of people. As appealing as this position might seem to be in some respects, it should cause us to wonder what we are doing in a body and why it should seem so natural to us to be bodily beings. So, even as appealing as this position might seem, this platonic approach might seem, 
because it gets around the problem of you're not being, not seeming to be the same being before and after <coughs> death, yet it seems to mock reason because it says, as natural as it seems to me to be a bodily being, the body is no part of me. And it seems to mock faith because why would Christ have become incarnate to redeem us if we are not naturally bodily beings? It would seem to mock the faith in a second way because if we are not naturally bodily beings, then what will be the point to the resurrection of the body? So as appealing as Plato's approach might seem, there are problems with it. The third position, the materialistic position, that seemed to be the position of Averroes. The third position on what it is to be human clearly comes into conflict with the faith because it says we are nothing but bodily beings who happen to be alive for a time. In that case, death will end everything. And we can then make no sense of the incarnation of Christ, nor any judgment or reward or punishment after death. If I am a body, and I die as a body, that is the end of me. If a new body is created to face judgment, heaven, or hell, it will not be me. No matter how much it looks like me. Even if it's a clone of me, it won't be me. Hence, we can rule out this position as one a Christian who wants to reconcile faith and reason with one another can possibly take. We must now choose between positions one and two. Aristotle's position, what it is to be human is a substantial composite of body and soul, or what it is to be human is, secondly, Plato's position, nothing but a soul. Okay. We must now choose between positions one and two. Either I am a substantial unity of soul and body, because being a bodily being is wholly natural to me, or I am essentially nothing more than a soul, accidentally associated with a body for a time in this life. First position is that of Aristotle, who held that the soul is related to the body as form to matter, and the two form one substance one whole natural being. According to Aristotle, the soul is the form of the body. <coughs> this does not mean that the soul is the shape of the body. <coughs> what it means is that the soul is that by which the body is actually a living human body. Okay? What it means to say that the soul is the form of the body is no more than to say that the soul is that by which the body is actually a living human body. Once you take away the soul at death, then the body begins to fall apart into a number of different material substances, each of which goes its own way. The second position is that of Plato, who held that man is a soul, trapped in a body for some reason that always remained unclear. At death we are freed from bondage to the body, and we then live as the separated soul we were meant to be. 
resurrection of the body can mean nothing in Plato's scheme of things. The soul would not want its body back, since the body had always hindered the soul from functioning as well as it could as a pure soul. Okay. St. Augustine had been strongly influenced by Plato's understanding of man. St. Augustine knows very well that the body is more natural to us than Plato makes it out to be. But he is still strongly inclined to identify man with his soul. St. <coughs> Thomas, on the other hand, and, and, and just a, a quick sideline, side sometimes St. Augustine referred to <coughs> a human being as a bodily being has a soul watching over its body. So you, you see how heavily Plato is weighing on his mind. What I am would seem to be essentially a soul, but in this life, I'm a caretaker for a body. I'm, I'm overseeing, taking care of a, a body. So this is how strongly St. Augustine was, was influenced by Plato's thought. Okay. St. Augustine knows that the body is more natural to us than Plato makes it out to be, but he is still strongly inclined to identify man with his soul. St. Thomas, on the other hand, agrees with Aristotle that man is a natural unity of body and soul. He thinks that only this position makes sense of common human experience. When I think of myself, I think of myself as a bodily being. I am acted on as a bodily being, and I act, for the most part, as a bodily being. Being a bodily being is wholly natural to me, since most of my abilities to act demand a body. Even my intellectual acts of knowing depend on the body indirectly, insofar as the intellect depends on the senses of the body to feed it, to give it information about material things. My being a bodily being agrees perfectly with my Christian belief in the resurrection of the body. Why would God rejoin me to my body unless it is a natural part of me? St. Thomas then accepts the position on human nature advanced by Aristotle, both because it is more in accord with our common human experience, hence more rational, and also because it makes sense of what faith tells us, trying to hold on to faith and reason. The problem St. Thomas was then faced with in the 13th century was the continuity of the human person through the experience of dying. Since I am missing my body after death, and it is a natural part of my substance, part of my nature, in what sense am I still me after I die and exist as a soul alone? This problem was as important then as it is now. It needed to be solved. How did St. Thomas harmonize faith and reason in the solution of this problem? If my body is a natural part of me, if it is absolutely needed for the performance of many of my natural activities, if it is a basic and fundamental part of what I am as a human being, 
then it is part of my human nature. If it is part of my human nature, then we're forced to conclude that we are incomplete in nature after death. We're forced to conclude that we are incomplete in nature after death. It is difficult to see how to escape this conclusion, so let's accept it. What follows? If I am incomplete in nature after death, the next question is, am I also incomplete in being in an essential way? Clearly, I'm incomplete in nature. The crucial question is, am I incomplete in being in an essential way? The question is not whether I am accidentally a different being after death. That would cause no problem. We're we're accidentally different every day than we were yesterday. The question is whether I am essentially a different being after I die. If I am, then how can I identify myself after death with who I was before death? If I cannot identify myself after death with who or what I was before death, then what sense would it make for me to be punished after death for the deeds of an essentially different being? Okay? If we are to make sense of our faith, then the soul after death must be the same person and the same being as the combination of body and soul before death. Not only does faith require this, but reason would seem to do so also. If it is my intellect and will that are in the soul, both when it is joined to the body and when it is separated from the body, then that soul must be me in some essential and in some important way. We now have two conclusions. First conclusion, if my body is a natural part of me, a natural essential part of me, and it is absent after I die, then after death I am incomplete in nature. Two, second conclusion. Even though I may be incomplete in nature after death, I must be complete in substantial being. That is, I am substantially the same being both before and after death. But if I am complete in my substantial being after death, but incomplete in my substantial nature after death, we are forced to conclude that my being and my nature are not identical with one another. My being and my nature are not identical with one another. There is, there must be a real otherness or distinction between my being and my nature. In short, Thomas is going to hold a a real distinction between one 
being or act of existing and to essence or nature. Okay? And he's got to say, in order to continue to make sense of the problem, uh, you can move my poster there. Just rip it right off the little. You to get, there you go. I'm concerned. Oh, well. You can erase this center if you want. And we've got to say that this is what's happening. The soul goes together with the act of existing. It's not the same as it, but. The act of existing, my act of existing, goes primarily with my soul, but it's communicated to the body. These two make up my essence or nature. Both of them, either or both of them, are distinct from my act of existing. But because my act of existing goes with my soul and is communicated by my soul to my body, once we cut the body off at death, I'm clearly incomplete in my essence or nature, but the whole being is still there. I am the same in being. Okay? See what he did? If we can make this distinction between the act of existing or the being of a thing and the essence or the nature of the thing, then we can solve this problem of the sameness and the difference in man after death. Same being, completed being, incomplete in nature, essentially or substantially speaking. Okay? In brief, essence and existence can be distinct from one another even when they are present together in one substantial being. This is the distinction that St. Thomas is famous for making and for using so extensively, even though it is not clear that he originated it. St. Thomas is well known for holding that essence, what a thing is, and existence, that a thing is, or actually exists in some way, are really distinct principles in every being with which we are familiar. They only coincide, essence and existence, only coincide and are identical with one another in God, who responded to Moses, who wanted to know, who am I going to tell them sent me when I go to the Israelites in bondage in captivity in Egypt? Who am I going to tell them sent me? And God responds, I am who am. And Christ was almost stoned when the Jews when he had been speaking to the Jews as if he had known Abraham. And the Jews said, who are you? Who, who are you? 
Abraham's long dead and gone, and you're speaking as if you knew Abraham. And Christ responded, Before Abraham was, I am. Which meant to the Jews, Christ was identifying himself with God. So only in God are essence and existence identical with one another. What God is, is existence. In everything other than God, essence or nature and act of existing are distinct from one another. And Thomas uses this principle to deal with the problem of, of man. Okay? Second problem. Two for the price of one. Okay. This one is going to be uh, a little more difficult. Yes. The idea of re reincarnation. Mm -hmm. You kind of think back on the thought of the time. Is this reincarnation. Yeah. No. The soul comes into another body or something. No. 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 Um, a Christian knew he couldn't take reincarnation seriously. So, even though St. Augustine was very influenced by the thought of Plato, and Plato is wholeheartedly a reincarnationist. You can hop from one body to another. Um, you know, you die, you go away, you're rewarded or punished for a while, you come back, you're born in another body, and so on. But, no, but these, these guys aren't fooling with reincarnation. Okay. Okay. How could he influence Augustine though, if he was a reincarnationist that doesn't seem to go together? Well, Augustine knew when to ignore things in Plato that didn't agree with the faith. Just, just like St. Thomas knew when to ignore things in Aristotle that disagreed with the faith. Still, what you were getting from these men, what you were getting from Plato, the thought of Plato and the thought of Aristotle, was incredible amount of knowledge, natural knowledge about reality, despite their mistakes. You're getting a tremendous amount of natural knowledge. You didn't want to turn your back on these people. And um, Augustine saw so many things that he thought were compatible with, um, with faith um, that he, he happily took over a lot of the thought of Plato, as it came through the thought of Plotinus, a later thinker, but but I go. Okay. Any other questions? We take up the second problem. The second problem um, is the one I'm a specialist in, and um, you have plenty of time, Doctor. You can do it. When I uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, when I decided to specialize in this in graduate school, one, one, one Dominican priest said, you're kidding. <laughs> you're, you're not going to deal with that stuff. That stuff's impossible. I said, but I like it. Anyway, here we go. This is where Sabatino's colorful title, Understanding, Understanding, came from. The second problem is St. Thomas on human understanding, specifically on the unity between the act of knowing and the thing known. Now that we are familiar with the distinction between essence and existence, let us consider another way in which St. Thomas used it to solve a thorny philosophical problem. 
problem is easily stated, <coughs> though it is hard to get people to take it seriously. <coughs> the problem is stated in the form of a question as follows. How does any act of knowing, which takes place wholly within the person who knows, how does any act of knowing, which takes place wholly within the person who knows, unite us with the thing we know, which is usually something not at all within the person who knows? How does it, an act of knowing, which takes place wholly within the person who is knowing, unite us with the thing we know? which is usually something not at all within the person who knows. When I know what it is to be a dog, is it coming? Yes. Let's take this off. It's a source of the knowledge. Oh, yes. You're right. So? This is my, uh, one of my silly stick figures. Okay. Act of knowing goes on within it. <laughs> dog. Act of knowing a dog. Okay. Now, you can say, um, the sun up here is shining. And there's, there's, there's an atmosphere between me and the dog. Sun shines on the dog, transfers a visual image from the dog to my eyes. Also, the dog's barking. I can, I can hear the dog. So, sure, I'm being given information from the dog. Of course, the sound's also reverberating off rocks. And visual images are just, you know, going everywhere. The visual image might be reflected in the mirror, but the mirror is not seeing anything. The rocks off of which the sound waves are bouncing aren't hearing anything. Um, so when I see or I hear, it's not just my receiving a visual image or receiving sound from the dog. My, my seeing is something over and above the visual image that I receive. Otherwise, mirrors would see. Tape recorders would hear. So there's an act that's going on within me, independent of the information that I'm receiving, yet influence determined somehow by the information I'm receiving, but there's an act going on in me that stays within me and by means of that act, I lay hold of this thing outside of me. How does it work? How does it work? They seem very unlike one another. The act of knowing that's in me is, a, is an accident. Just an accidental part of my being. This is a substance. This, this dog. And certainly, my act of knowing it's not materially like that dog. In what way does the one lay hold of the other? Okay. An act that takes place wholly within the agent is often called an imminent act. 
since the word imminent can be spelled in different ways. It's this way of spelling it. <laughs> it doesn't mean Armageddon is imminent. Okay, that's a different spelling. An act that takes place wholly within the agent is often called an imminent act. And it is opposed to a transitive act, which is completed only in something which is acted on, like hammering. Hammering a nail into a piece of wood is a transitive act. It leaves the one acting, and it's completed in the thing acted on. Okay? So transitive act, patting a dog on the head, scratching the dog behind the ear, um, jumping up and down on the ground, these are transitive acts. Seeing is an imminent act. Hearing is an imminent act. Knowing, imagining, loving, hating, these are all imminent acts. Okay, an object transcends the one acting if it does not exist within him as part of his being. Briefly stated then, we can put the problem of knowledge as follows. How does the imminent act of knowing unite the knower with the transcendent object of his knowledge? How does the imminent act of knowing unite the being who's knowing with this object which is outside him, which transcends him? How does the act how is the act united to the thing known? The act of knowing and the thing known clearly differ from one another in being. The act of knowing exists within the knower as an accidental part of his being. The thing known is usually a different substance, or part of a different substance, or it is perhaps a plurality of different substances, as when you look at a forest, or all the grass on, on the ground, a bunch of dogs. Pardon? It's only by grace of God. Um, let's give reason a chance first. <laughs> There is a whole group of Catholic philosophers who say, don't even try to explain how knowledge works. You see, if you try, you're going to get into trouble. St. Thomas didn't take that route. <laughs> he tried. Okay. The point is that the act of knowing clearly differs in being from what is known, typically. And yet something must unite the act of knowing with the thing that is known. Otherwise, how, how, how can you say this act of knowing is, oh, that thing? Something must make the act of knowing an act of knowing one thing rather than another. By means of an act of knowing, the thing known is also said to be in the knower. We say often that some person or topic is on our mind or within our thoughts, or that a person we often think of is always with us. This is similar. All I'm saying now is, you know, when I when I see the dog, I can say not only that my act of knowing is of this dog, but that by my act of knowing, the dog is in some way in me. Okay, that's all I'm saying. Somehow. And I'm giving you examples of similar cases. This is similar to the way in which we say that we see ourselves in a mirror. 
Or it's also similar with the way we look at a picture of someone and identify the picture in some sense as the person. See, this is my mother. This is my sister. See this? <coughs> nobody says, no, nobody's rude enough to say, that's not your mother, that's just a piece of paper. <laughs> People look at it and go, okay. Yeah. Or you, you, you see the statue of Lincoln and you can say, that's a rock statue of Lincoln. Or you can say, that's Lincoln. We, we do that. What are we doing when we do this? What are we, what are we doing when we say, I see myself in the mirror? No one says, you're not in the mirror, dummy. That's just an image. <laughs> so the question is, what is going on here? Clearly, when we refer to a mirror image as the thing imaged, or when we refer to a picture of a thing as the thing pictured, or when we refer to a statue of a person as if it were the person represented in the statue, or when you argue with someone you see on TV. Everybody <laughs> says, what are you doing, stupid? You're just arguing with a piece of glass and a bunch of tubes. What we are doing is taking a likeness of a thing as the thing itself. This likeness is also called a formal likeness of the thing because they're not materially the same, but there's some way in which they're formally like one another. Why does it make sense to do this? It is because the form of a thing is that principle in virtue of which the thing is actually what it is. Remember, soul is the form of the body, means the soul is that by which the body is actually what it is. I'm just going to use that same notion of form over again here. <coughs> the form of a thing is that principle in virtue of which the thing is actually what it is. So, let's take a short digression here. What do we mean by the form of a thing? A form can be either substantial or accidental. A form by which a living thing is actually alive and is actually one specific kind of living being is an example of a substantial form. Like my soul is a substantial form. Makes me actually human, which is something substantial. Accidental forms, on the other hand, are many in kind. But let us consider the most familiar one of all, namely shape. Shape is an accidental form. There are shapes that are typical of different kinds of things. A human being has one shape, and a dog has another shape. We recognize things by their shapes. But shape does not make a thing to be the kind of substance it is. Otherwise, a statue of a human being would be a human being. Not just representationally, but actually. If shape made a thing to be actually and substantially what it is, then any statue is the thing it represents. And all those <coughs> wax statues in the Wax Museum in London would be persons, real, you know, real human beings. So shape is an accidental form, not a substantial form. So the statue of Lincoln is like Lincoln accidentally, not substantially. 
Color is another kind of accidental form. For example, by virtue of the accidental form of red, a thing is said to be actually a red thing. The point here is that no matter whether the form is substantial or accidental, it is still generally that by which a thing is actually what it is. Substantial forms are that by which things are actually what they are substantially. Accidental forms are that by which things are actually what they are accidentally. Okay. With this short digression on form out of the way, we can go back to our problem. How can an imminent act of knowing unite us to the things we know? Clearly, the being or act of existing of the two, the act of knowing and the dog, are not the same. The being of the act of knowing, the being of the dog, are not the same. Indeed, they are two very different beings. Then how can the one, for example, the act of knowing, unite us with the other, that is, the thing known, in such a way that we can justify saying, one, that the act of knowing is of the thing known, and two, by virtue of the act of knowing, the thing known is in some way in the knower. Clearly, there's a difference in being here between the act of knowing and the thing known, and yet there's also a union between the two of them. There's got to be a union, otherwise, you can make no sense of why this act of knowing would be of this dog rather than of a cat or of a tree or of something else. There's got to be a union there. And by means of that act of knowing that dog, the dog, in some sense, can be said to be in the knower. Okay. On this point, Thomas agreed with Aristotle. The form of the thing known must be in the knower in order to explain how the act of knowing is directed to the thing known and also how the thing known can be said to be in the knower. So, what Aristotle and Thomas are saying is the act of being of the act of knowing and the being of the dog, clearly different, completely different being, yet they've got to be the same somehow in order to explain knowledge. Since form is that by which a thing is actually what it is, Aristotle and Thomas agreed, the same form must be in the dog and in that act of knowing. The same form, not the same being, not the same matter, just the same form. Okay. Don't fall asleep yet. How do we know it's the same form? If it's not the same form, we can't make any sense out of what we do day in and day out. Namely, our act of our act of knowing unites us with these things known in some way. So that once we know them, in a sense, they are part of us. They're within us. They make up part of what we are. They, they live within us in, in, in our knowledge, by our knowing. Something is uniting me, when I know, something is uniting me with the things that I know. It's certainly not the being of my act of knowing, certainly not the being of the dog. The being is very different. Mm -hmm. Materially, we're very different. <coughs> 
And my act of knowing, if it's an intellectual act, may be completely immaterial, not material at all. We're not going to argue that, but the point is, the being is different, the matter is different, but something's got to be uniting them. Aristotle said the only thing left is form as a principle. And since form is that by which a thing is actually what it is, it would work <coughs> the same form that makes the matter of the dog be substantially a dog, makes my act of knowing be of a dog, rather than of a tree, or of a cat, or of something else. So if we're going to take the, the problem, for, I'm sorry, if we're going to take our experience seriously and say it's got, it's got to make sense, because we do it day in and day out, and it's got to be explainable somehow. It's got to be a way to unite the act of knowing to the thing known. If the act of being won't do it, if the matter won't do it, they're materially different, the form has got to be the same. All the same. We're back into a corner. Being won't work, matter won't work, form is the only principle left. So Aristotle said, it's, it's got to be the form that's uniting the thing known with the knower. And Thomas agreed with Aristotle. Somehow, the form of the thing known must be in the knower in order to explain how the act of knowing is directed to one specific thing known rather than another, and also how the thing known can be said to be in the knower. In the same way as, clearly, it's my shape that's in the mirror, that's some aspect of my form, it's my shape in the mirror, by, by means of which I say, I see myself in the mirror. Clearly, in this case, it is a shape. It's form in the sense of shape. And form in the sense of color. I'm not green and purple and polka dotted. We know I look in the mirror, those, those are my colors, that's my shape. Those forms are my forms. They belong to me. They're accidental forms, but they're mine. And so by their being in the mirror, I say, I am in the mirror. Okay? And Aristotle just takes this, this thing which he was aware of, because they had pictures. Painters you know, painted pictures of people and things. You could look at a painting and say, that's so-and-so. How can you do that? Aristotle said, it's because the form is there in some way. Okay? I'm, almost, I'm almost done here. The form of the thing known must be in the knower in order to explain how the act of knowing is directed to the thing known and also how the thing known can be said to be in the knower. This means we can say that while the act of knowing and the thing known usually differ in being from one another and are usually materially different, yet they must be, in some sense, formally the same. That is, the same form must be both in the act of knowing and in the thing known. One and the same form, in some sense of the word form, must make the thing known to be actually what it is, and also make the act of knowing to be actually what it is. That is, a knowing of one thing rather than another. Since the form is part of what a thing is, part of the essence, remember we had essence, form, plus matter, for material things, and then plus act of existing. This is a being. 
This is what's being used, again, to explain the union between the knower and the known. This is not being used, once again, because the act of existing must be different. The form must be the same in order to explain what's going on. We're, we're forced into the same distinction we were before, and that same distinction enables us to solve a problem. Since the form is part of what a thing is, while the act of existing or the act of being is no part of what things typically are, St. Thomas has once again used this distinction between what a thing is and its act of existing in order to solve a difficult philosophical problem. In this case, he has taken over a distinction that was implicit in Aristotle and made it explicit. Aristotle clearly distinguished between what a thing is materially speaking and what a thing is formally speaking. Aristotle could say that the stone that I see is not materially present in my seeing of it, and yet the form of the stone must be present in my sight in order to explain how I see a stone and not a tree or a dog or a cat. While taking over this distinction between form and matter within things, St. Thomas pushes it one step deeper and says not only is there a distinction between form and matter within things, there is also a distinction between form and matter on the one hand, which make up what things are, and the act of existing on the other. He then uses this distinction between form and act of existing to explain how we are able to know the things we do, to become somehow through knowledge the things we know without materially or substantially being those things. Next time, we will consider how Thomas uses this same distinction between essence and existence. One, to argue to the existence of God. Two, to know something very basic about the nature of God. Three, to say something intelligible about the union of two natures in the one person of Christ. Sounds impossible, right? Four, to make more intelligible to us what happens during the transubstantiation of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And five, in what way we can speak of three persons in one God without falling into a contradiction. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, this is kind of a general question, but since most of the Catholic universities today are not teaching Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle, right. how do they teach and what are the new theologies? Um, I know you're not going to be able to tell me all of this, but what do they put in place of the detail of Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, of the, man, the rational psychology of how man thinks? Are there whole different theologies today? Well, before grandchildren at Georgetown, I'm worried about what they're learning, how they think, how they're going to learn how to think. Yeah, I don't know what the, what the programs are at different colleges and universities, except in general terms. Um, in, in most colleges and universities, um, there is not much philosophy required. 
of, of students. students. They just don't learn anything at all about Well, well they, 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 they can take all kinds of different courses, but they're typically not required to take more than maybe one or two philosophy courses. Um, and, and often um, it, they may take a systematic course, and they may they may they might have you know um, uh, an Aristotelian approach to human nature. Or they might have a course in logic. Um, uh, often they might just have a course in modern philosophy. Um, just you know, learn what a, a number of modern philosophers think. It varies tremendously. And but it, other modern philosophers just don't believe in this at all. That's um, not, not many modern philosophers are 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 impressed by Aristotle. Um, they they're wrestling with the same problems, and they come up with some pretty outlandish solutions. Um, I, I mean, I, 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 teach, I, I, I teach the whole history. I, I teach the whole history of philosophy, and, and and modern philosophy has largely cut itself off from the ancient and the medieval tradition. They wanted to start over again, and, and they were really fascinated with what was going on in modern science. The, the the development of modern science in the 17th century really fascinated the philosophers, and. Um, uh, they in, the, the philosophers interpreted what was going on in science in, 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 in different ways. Um, and, and then they, they, they took off and to reinvent the wheel. That is, the modern philosophers be, began to reinvent the wheel. They figured since modern scientists were, were as successful as they were, why pay attention to past philosophers? Why not just focus on what those scientists are doing and try to understand philosophically how the scientists are doing what they're doing? So some of them said it's because of mathematics that they're doing what they're doing. Some of them said it's because of the great appeal to the senses that they're doing what they're doing. And they just you know, began to, they reinvented explanations of the nature of, of, of reality. Uh, unfortunately, your, your ability to, to explain reality depends on you know, the, the, the depth of intellect and intellectual penetration into reality that you've got. And, and few people in history have the mind of a Plato or of an Aristotle or of, a, or a, or of an Augustine or of a St. Thomas. Um, most of the moderns just don't match up. They're very clever men, but they, they just don't match up. So there's no sort of like a comparative philosophy. There isn't that sort of thing. Here's Aristotle and here's what so-and-so today thinks. No, there's no telling what you get. You know, when, 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 you, when you go to a college, you, you, it's just every one of them is different, and you could get almost any kind of mixture of either systematic courses or historical courses. But, but typically, often, what, what you would get you know, as an introduction to philosophy, um, well, if you're lucky, a lot of Catholic colleges, what you would get is a little bit of Plato, a little bit of Aristotle, a little bit of, of Augustine or Thomas, and then two or three modern thinkers. And, you know, this is your introduction. So you pick up a taste, pick up a, a taste. Plato, Aristotle, maybe Augustine, maybe Thomas. Um, but it, you don't get much philosophy at all. So it, it, it depends on it depends on whether or not you like that little taste. Whether you, as a student, will go after more. Now it seems all these philosophers, whether they're Eastern philosopher or Western philosopher, they all believe in body and soul, right? But is any of these well, so not wholly? No. Go ahead. But it, what would be the last question? How how, how souls multiply? How, how souls multiply? Right. 
Well, if you're a materialist, you would just hold that a human soul is no different from an animal soul, and all the soul is is just the way pre-existing matter has been structured or formed, um, or something similar to this. So it would be no problem multiplying souls because um, most thinkers don't believe that a soul is something that could exist apart from a living thing. And most souls can't, cannot exist apart from living things. What? Human souls can. With human souls, you've got a real problem with the multiplication of human souls. Each one has to be specially created because it can exist all by itself apart from a body at some point. It has to be given an act of being directly just as a soul. That's creation. But when one, when two material live, two, two, two dogs, male and a female dog, create, you know, bring a new dog into existence, they're not literally creating anything. They're just, they're just structuring pre-existing matter. And a, a lot of, if you're a materialist, which is, you know, what the vast majority of modern philosophers would be, you would hold that a human being is just a more sophisticated animal. No problem with the multiplication of souls. All we're doing is structuring pre-existing matter. If you're a Platonist, there is no multiplication of souls. They're fixed forever and ever. There's nobody creating souls. And if you're and if you are an Aristotelian, you don't know where those souls came, came from either. It's like they're also fixed. But but for a Christian, obviously, God can give give beings. So it depends on how you understand the soul. Yes, sir. Um, it, uh, maybe I misunderstood you earlier, but it, you seem to say that when you lost your um, sus, if you lost your substantial atom existence at death, that if at some point after that you received life again, existence again, it would not be you to stand before the judgment seat of God or something to that. Yeah, that was a wreck. Yeah, for fuck half my questions. Yeah, if you yeah, if Sorry, if you if if you ceased to be the substantial being that you are, um, either because you're nothing but a body and the body goes out of existence. Or you're a body and the soul and you say not only did I not only did I lose part of my nature with my body, I also lost part of my substantial being, right. so that I'm substantially a different being, okay. then we would have real problems in either of those two cases, materialist or okay. one way of understanding Aristotle. If you take that then and you apply it to your point on epistemology, on, on knowledge, uh -huh. it seems like I would never come to know you or anything in the real because if substantial existence is a necessary part of the thing, in what it is, then when I come to know something and the substantial existence is different, or I lose its substantial existence, I give it accidental existence and knowledge, then it fundamentally is different. Because you're only basing it on the form and not the actual thing. I'm missing, I'm missing something. That if, if the substantial existence of the thing is a, a necessary component to what it is, then when I come to know the thing, and I come to know you, uh -huh. I'm not coming to know your substantial, I'm not receiving your substantial existence and knowledge. And therefore, I wouldn't be coming to know you in what you are. Um, you could still say that I, I am receiving your substantial existence through the form, insofar as the form represents 
not only the matter of which it is the form and which it makes to be what it is, but the form is also a stand-in for the substantial act of existing because it determines that substantial act of existing to be an act of existing of this kind of thing rather than some other kind of thing. So the form, the, 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 the form which the knower receives from the thing known is a stand-in for the whole thing. It determines the matter to be actually the kind of matter it is. It determines the act of existing to be the kind of act of existing it is. So if you get the form, you get a representation of the whole being. Form, matter, act of being. Okay. Speaking of form, if you're in a room full of blind people, how do you explain that? You speak form and knowledge. You form knowledge by seeing that form. Oh, that's one way we pick up the forms of things. We pick up the forms of things through hearing, through smell, through taste, through touch. They're, they're, I, I, I gave you a very cut down. I, I gave you a very cut down version of how everything works by just taking shape and saying when you, when you see the shape, you you can recognize a thing through its shape. That's one accidental form. You can see at, you can see the shape, you can feel the shape of a thing, but even if you leave if you leave shape go, when a thing acts, and it, actions um, actions reveal what a thing are too. Actions come forth from within a thing and reveal something of what of, of what it is. We know things are the kinds of things they are because of the kinds of actions that they perform. So even the form of an act of a thing, whether it acts on your eyes, your ears, your, your, your sense of smell, taste, or touch, even the way a thing acts on you communicates something to you of what that thing is. So form, form is present everywhere. There's substantial form. There's a great variety of accidental forms. Every form you receive is telling you something, something of what the thing that's acting on you is. So you can be blind. You can be blind. You can be deaf. Um, you might be missing your smell, you know, your, 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 your sense of smell, your sense of taste, taste. If you've got touch, if you've got touch, it's enough for some information to be coming to you from the world around you. For the, it enables the forms of things being formed the way they are to act on you through their actions being the form, the kind of action that, 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 that they are. The very minimal amount of knowledge you'd be getting, your intellect would be poverty-stricken because it would have you know, very little feeding it from the senses, but still you would be getting something because of the way things are formed the way they are, are made to be actually what they are, both substantially and accidentally. Yes? How do we know God if we cannot use our five senses? Oh, we know God um, because when you know the form of any material thing, um, the form is... Um, a stand-in or, or a representative for the being of the thing. And we can isolate form, matter, and act of existing within things. We can isolate those components from one another. And we'll go into this next time. It's the act of existing of the thing that leads us straight to God. 
uh, not the form, not the matter, but the act of existing leads us straight to God because we cannot make sense of how, how things actually exist rather than not exist unless something is giving being to those things. Um, and, and, and so we know God in and through knowing the being of the material things in the world around us. And we know God not as the being of those things, but as the only cause of those beings. So we know God, whenever we know anything, we're always knowing God indirectly because that thing makes no sense unless it's being upheld in being by someone who has the, the ability to give being to things. You know anything, you know God through that thing. Mm-hmm. Even though you're not aware that that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Indirectly, that's what you're, you're doing. Okay. 